Let us turn together to the New Testament scriptures. If you are a, a visitor, we encourage you to follow the scripture reading in your own Bible or in the Bible from the pew rack in front of you in the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, reading from verse 17 of chapter 1 to verse 5 of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 71, verse 17, where we read these words of the Apostle Paul, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The Lord will bless again to our understanding this passage of his own inspired word. Now the theme that we are pursuing on these several Sunday mornings together is the theme, as many of you will recall, Life in the Spirit. And so far we have been considering together the subject of worshipping God in the Spirit, and last Sunday, walking in the Spirit, that is, the Christian 
living a spirit-filled life. And this morning we have reached the third of this trio of studies that is entitled Witnessing in the Spirit. And you remember that the purpose of these three Sunday mornings is really to answer the question, how does the Christian live out his life in this world in a Godward direction, that is, by worshipping God in the Spirit, in an inward direction, that is, walking in the Spirit, and this morning, thirdly, in that outward direction, which is living our lives in relation to others around us who are not Christians at all. Now, if you were to ask me the reason this morning why we need this third part of the trio, it is surely clear that one of the first answers is the need of the world around us in all its multiplied sickness and confusion, in which we see this modern society is operating. And we see the appalling ineffectiveness alongside the need of the world in terms of the Christian church. But in these days when there is a multiplicity, it seems, of books on evangelism, and conferences about evangelism and witnessing, and seminars on evangelism, and Christian magazines on the subject, and programs on the television to equip Christians to witness better, we behold, on the one hand, the great need of the world in its multiplied sickness, and so often the ineffectiveness of the church to meet that need at all. I'm told in these days that in my own country of Great Britain, very shortly, there will be as many committed Muslims in that land as there are committed evangelical Christians. And in this country of North America, I suggest to you that we are approaching that kind of situation where non-Christian religions and non-Christian cults are so much on the upsurge and are growing so remarkably that we may be in a similar situation before very long. And when you think that for the multitude of unconverted people around us, the Christian church has become something of an irrelevance to us, and a generation is arising that is largely untouched by the holy scriptures of God's word, and unreached by Christian people with biblical convictions, you can see that the need constitutes one of the main reasons for approaching our subject this morning. But the main reason, surely, is that in the teaching of the New Testament, the reason why the Holy Spirit was given to the church on the day of Pentecost in a public way is that it was the purpose of the Lord Jesus to equip his people for such service as is before us this morning, for witnessing to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, to inspire those early disciples with steadily expanding circles to go out from Jerusalem into Judea and from Judea into Samaria and from Samaria into the uttermost parts of the world, preaching with the Spirit's power and conviction the Lord Jesus as the only and unique Savior of men. 
And you can see, I think, the relevance of looking at this subject, therefore, for us as a congregation. As we ask ourselves the question this morning, relatively small in numbers as we are, what does it mean to have a witness for God that is spiritually empowered? And what is true biblical evangelism as it is set out in the scriptures of God's word? Now, I suggest to you that from the first five verses of chapter 2 of the book of First Corinthians, there are three areas, vital areas, where biblical evangelism is set out for us so clearly. There is the theme of Paul's witness. There is, secondly, the motive for Paul's witness. And thirdly, there is the dynamic in the witness of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to direct your attention to the whole passage that we read from 1 Corinthians this morning, but particularly to those first five verses of chapter 2. Now, will you notice, first of all then with me, the theme of Paul's witness? And you find this in verses 1 and again in verse 2 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Now, as we look at this, beloved, let me remind you that the purpose is to aid you in your personal witnessing. We're looking at what Paul did and what his experience was. But it's pointless to think of witness and evangelism in terms of other people, even the Apostle Paul, if we are not ourselves ready to become living witnesses for the Lord Jesus day by day where we are and ask the question, how may I witness in the Spirit of God toward others? And I suggest to you as we approach then the first of these three points this morning, the theme of Paul's witness, that there is absolutely nothing vague about it, whatever. He bore witness to the grace of God in Christ Jesus in an utterly clear and straightforward way. Now, one of our contemporary problems in the church is precisely here, a vagueness very often about what constitutes the message, the essential theme of the gospel. And so many Christians even today find it easy to speak about their church or their congregation or to speak about religious matters in general or the social issues in which the church is involved and so on. But as to the essence of what the gospel really is and what we should really be witnessing to, they are completely vague, just as the apostle is crystal clear in this passage. And there are two main features, and I want you to notice these two features of Paul's theme. It is a God-given message, beloved, at the end of verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I came not with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony of God. Now let me correct the New International Version here because it's not so much, sadly, a translation as it is an interpretation. It says the testimony about God. And you see, that's not what the apostle is saying at all. It is the testimony of 
God. He's not thinking about God's involvement in the testimony and the witness of the testimony to God, but he's thinking that the message which the apostle brought, avoiding all human eloquence and wisdom, was accompanied by the witness and authority of God upon it, just as he had revealed that message to the apostle. So he came in that message, in testimony of great power and accompanied by authority of great power to witness to it. Now, this is very important for you to grasp, because it means that the message that the apostle brought was not just a human theme that had some human wisdom or human philosophy in it. He's dealt with that whole question of human philosophy and wisdom and how far that will get you in the later part of chapter 1, you remember, when he said he wasn't sent to baptize and he wasn't sent to convince them by human eloquence and great authority, but that rather contrariwise, the gospel he brought was a stumbling block and an offense to the Jews and equally a stumbling block to the Greeks. It is God's revelation. And it is Paul's position to take that revelation intact and to proclaim it. Now, you see, the point is this, that if we have a God-given message that is the testimony of God, we may come to men and women of our own age and say in a certain and real sense, thus says the Lord. And in the face of what is happening, this is so important for us to be able to do this. Because we're living in an age, beloved, when many people's religion is a confidence in human wisdom and scientific discovery. The very thing that Paul has avoided getting into for the reasons that I've explained. Whenever you open the newspaper today, you see tributes to man's ingenuity and the latest news about what man is doing upon this round globe. And we have put man on the moon and we have peered into the furthest recesses of outer space with our magnificent modern telescopes and discovered things that human eyes and human brains have never contemplated before. But here on earth, we are still unable to solve our basic problems. And what Paul is doing, you see, when he says, this is the testimony of God that I am bringing you, this is my theme, he's standing before men and saying, where is the wise man and the philosopher? What has his wisdom done for men? It left them in utter despair, just as it did in ancient Greece. And men need this gospel's answer, the gospel that has been devised and planned and achieved and accomplished from beginning to end by God and is now revealed and disclosed by him with the authority of his own power behind it. And Paul says, my greatest privilege is to proclaim and bear testimony to this gospel that comes 
with God's authority upon it. Now, is that your view of the theme that you have to share with men and women today? Because the second part of that theme, you notice, is in verse 2. Not only does it have the authority of God, a God-given message, but it is a Christ-centered message as well. I resolve to know nothing, he says, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now let me take just a moment on this, because you notice at once that what the apostle was committed to was not to a theory, not even to a doctrine, even though the Christian faith is glorious doctrine, and we cannot do without doctrine. But what Paul is committed to primarily is not a theology merely, but a person. And his burning desire as he becomes a witness with the power of the Spirit behind him is to speak to them of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And not merely to preach about him, you notice, but to know nothing else among them, to have nothing else in his mind or thoughts but Christ and him alone. Now, you see, when you think of this, you cannot divorce this from Paul's office and calling to be an evangelist. And you go back into his experience and you see his conversion on on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And he didn't there come to a change of philosophy or a view of life. He didn't there join the Christian church. That's not the significance of his conversion but the living reality of the person of Jesus broke through into his darkened mind and his veiled heart and led him out into the Roman world to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the theme of the gospel that he brought. But you notice it's not just Christ as a person, but Christ and him crucified. And it's so essential for us to see and to grasp this because we don't emphasize, I hope, in spirit-filled witness that Jesus was a great teacher, although he was all of that. But he was a peerless person without any fault, although he was all of that as well. But we emphasize that on the cross of Calvary, He bore the judgment for God's chosen people, his elect children, and he died in that place of wrath under the Father's displeasure. He was crucified for us, that we, through that mighty transaction in which he took our sin and we received his righteousness, that we might be reconciled to God in him. And that is where the gospel you see takes us in its great theme. Now let me remind you that this is the great answer to the human problem again today, isn't it? The only provision in this world that can touch men's need is in Christ and him crucified. And it's very interesting that in the Greek text, the word crucified is a perfect participle that means that although the event is in the past, the continuing and abiding results of that event go on into the present. So that as John Calvin says, 
the satisfaction for sin which Christ made is always in its full vigor. And I like that quotation of his. And what it says to us today, you see, is that we can go out into a world of spiritual darkness and total idolatry, a world that is swamped with evil, and hold up gloriously the theme of the gospel witness before men as the only thing that will do them good. And our office in the world is far more important than that of the doctor who heals the body but can do nothing for the condition of the soul, far more important than the office of the scientist who can better conditions for life on earth but has nothing to say concerning the life to come. And we can go out and we can say that in this gospel that has the testimony of God stamped upon it, whose great theme is Christ and him crucified, is the answer for all of men's greatest and deepest needs. And with the apostle in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and following, we can say the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are idolaters and abusers of themselves with mankind, homosexuals, those who are thieves and blasphemers. And we can say there is the possibility of transformation so that we can look at you in church one day and say, and such were some of you. Christ and him crucified is the key to what some of you brothers and sisters are now this very morning. The theme of Paul's witness. Now the second thing do you notice is this. There is the motive for Paul's witness. You have it at the end of chapter 1 in verse 31 and again at the beginning of verse 2 in chapter 2. It's the same theme, and it runs all through this passage. The motive for Paul's witness, beloved, is nothing else than the glory of God himself. And as I say, the whole section that we read from verse 17 of chapter 1 to verse 5 of chapter 2 is really nothing but an extended sermon upon that verse that he quotes in verse 31, from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, let him that boasts or glories, boast or glory in the Lord alone. Now there's a profound sense in which you can say that the apostle is absorbed in this whole theme right through these early chapters of 1 Corinthians. He's consumed by a jealous zeal that nothing may rob God of his glory in the message and the ministry and the manner of the great apostle Paul. And that, of course, affects the message and the manner and the method that the apostle uses. And that's why he goes into great detail in telling us that he avoided or eschewed the methods that were very common then, that were used by those who had a cause and a message to bring, great oratorical display, great wisdom expressed in the various philosophical schools of the time, great eloquence and wisdom combined together, it might be, 
and he avoided these things and eschewed them, he said, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. Just as that message, therefore, was despised and ridiculed by those who were wise in this world, so he tells the converts, but they themselves, you notice in verse 26 and 27, are despised. There are not many mighty and not many noble and not many wise who are called to faith in Christ among you, but it seems the very dregs of society were one to faith in the Lord Jesus more than these. And the reason is the same, that no one may boast before God. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says, perhaps there is no other portion of Scripture that deals more painful, powerful blows at man's pride than this one does. For our desire for self-glorification and power is deeply ingrained in the fallen human heart. Self-glorification, says Stott, dogs our footsteps. Yet, as we seek our own salvation and as we go out to seek the salvation of others, Paul says, let no flesh glory in God's presence. Now, isn't that interesting? When you take that motive of the apostle, the glory of God alone, so that he avoided every presentation and manner and method that focused attention upon himself, the message bearer, and you contrast it with what you see happening in the church today, it's like light with darkness. And the reason why the motive in biblical witness Witness that his spirit-inspired must always be the glory of God is that is why Jesus came into the world. He didn't come into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to seek the glory of his Father in the salvation of sinners. And that's why, remember, in that great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus in John 17, he prays in that awesome hush in the upper room, Father, glorify your name. I have come to glorify your name. And you see today, there may be many legitimate motives for witnessing to others such as their need that I mentioned, such as the command, the great commission to go into all the world, and these are adequate in their place and time. But there is one overriding motive that must lie in the depths of our beings if we are to be spirit-filled witnesses for Christ, and that is, wherever we see the glory of God being robbed and taken away from him in the life of any man or woman, we are filled with a jealousy that that man or woman might be led humbly to the feet of Christ in repentance and faith, that that revenue of glory that belongs to the Heavenly Father might be ingathered by him. And you see, when we look out on a world today that is robbing God of his glory on every hand, it must become the church's motive to restore the glory of God 
as the great motive for evangelism, and nothing less than that, beloved, will ever do. I was reading not so long ago in the biography of Henry Martin that has been republished by the Banner of Truth Trust a number of years ago. He was a very brilliant scholar at the British University in Cambridge, and he went out as a young man to give his life in missionary service in Persia, a very difficult and Muslim country in which to serve, and he died there as a young man. And on one occasion, he saw pictures of Jesus inscribed upon an embroidered rug with Jesus bowing down before the prophet Muhammad. And some of his fellow Christians found him shortly afterwards, weeping copiously, and they asked him why. And Martin said, I cannot go on living if my Savior is to be thus dishonored. The glory of God. You see, we need to ask ourselves this question. Do we know such zeal as this? You remember how I told you of Paul just a few Sundays ago, going into the streets of Athens, a city that was swamped with idolatry, so that it was more easy to find in Athens a god than it was to find a person. And it says there in Acts 17 that when he saw this sight, he took a paroxysm. He was moved within himself. It's the Greek word for a heart attack. And he felt, you see, the zeal for God's glory breaking him up inside as he saw a city wholly given to idolatry. Is that how you react when you go out into the streets of Jacksonville that is given over so wholly to idolatry? Does it do that to you? The motive for evangelism is the glory of God. Now, thirdly, as I begin to draw to a close, there is the dynamic of the of Paul's witness in verses 4 and 5. And you notice that Paul tells us there that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And you know, I have to say to you this morning that that is what is absent from so much of current Christian living and Christian witness. And if you look at those verses more closely, you see that what Paul is describing here is what was usual in the apostolic ministry, especially as we've seen in that great missionary journey in Greece. For instance, in First Thessalonians 2, you read he describes of how his ministry was first received by the Thessalonians, he says the gospel came not simply with word, isn't that interesting, but with power and in the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And this is what we need to face today. There's a great deal of the gospel coming in word only. But the thing that really matters, says the apostle, is, is the gospel coming through me personally, through us as a congregation corporately, with power and in the Holy Ghost? 
and in great conviction, so that men are arrested by this message and convicted of their sin and humbled and drawn to the feet of Christ in repentance and saving faith. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not walking down the front of a hundred or a thousand people in a congregation and mouthing some words and becoming a Christian. Although God in his providence may on occasion use that, But you see, we need to realize this morning there are many things that men can do, even Christian men and women. We can present the gospel very persuasively and very intellectually, and we can move men and women very emotionally. It's not that difficult to do it. But only the Holy Spirit of God can regenerate men and women with the new birth into the kingdom of God and raise them out of spiritual death into new and wonderful spiritual life. And that's why we need to be sent back to this passage and to the God of this passage. And you know, that's why we need to confess that we've so often been foolish and misled, and we have believed that power belongs to us. And now we've discovered that power belongs to him. And the true way to witness is with the motive for the glory of God alone. And that's why Paul says that God has so often chosen the weak things and the things that are despised, yes, even the things that apparently have no existence or importance in men's thoughts and use them as the vehicle by which the witness might be spirit-empowered. Do you remember this was the apostle's experience as he came into Corinth? I was in weakness and fear and much trembling, he said. And the very quaking of the apostle was, as it were, a platform for the display of God's power that no flesh should boast in his presence and all the glory will be God's. And the result, as you read in verse 5, is that when these men and women came to Christ, their faith wasn't built upon man's wisdom and eloquence and philosophy and intellectual reasoning. It was built upon the power of God because they came to Christ by the power of God. Now, as I finish this morning, I'm bound to say to you, my dear friends, that we know so little of this in our generation and in the church of God. And we must certainly prepare ourselves to be witnesses in the best possible way by reading the right kind of books and studying the appropriate scripture passages and praying from our heart that God will make us effective witnesses. You know, in this day of modern technology and all our achievements and the power of the printing press and the use of computers, the most effective way of church growth is still on a one-to-one basis where a church member shares the gospel with a friend or neighbor or member of their family or invites them to a place where the word of God is being faithfully preached 
and that's how important you are. But you see, if we are bound to witness in a biblical way, we are bound to pray that as we read the Bible and study books on evangelism and pray that God will make us effective, we are bound to pray, may that Holy Spirit of God, that fire from heaven, as it were, fall upon our witness and empower it in the way that we have seen the apostles' witness was empowered. Oh, God, grant us the fire from heaven today should be our prayer as we go out and speak to others of Christ. And that's why if the power belongs to him and if the church is weak and ineffective as it is, what we need is to be much on our knees in prayer. For this is God's work, beloved. And we must be much engaged in it with him. So let's remember as I finish in this age of so often slick evangelism, that the reason why the church exists is not for the salvation of sinners. It is for the glory of God in the salvation of sinners, which makes all the difference about the methods and the manners and the themes of the gospel that we handle. And that also we should cry to God very much for the help of the Spirit's power, that these frail earthen vessels of ours might be filled with the exceeding greatness of his power, and that we should see as a result of our witness the Holy Spirit coming and witnessing in the Spirit to men and women. Arm of the Lord, awake, awake. Put on thy strength the nation shape, and let the world adoring see triumphs of grace wrought out by thee. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this morning as we close the study on this passage, may the Holy Spirit take these themes and truly apply them to our conscience and our heart that we might be men and women boys and girls who not only worship and walk in the Spirit, but the fruit of these two things will issue in a witness that is in the Spirit, and all for the glory of God, in the power of God, that men's faith might not rest in men, but in God, and that he might derive that revenue of honor and glory that rightfully belongs to him, for Jesus' sake. Amen.